Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a room of rejected mascot memorabilia. Is it real? No one knows. But we do know NJM is proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox of Crooked Media's with friends like these, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. On today's episode, I am talking to Dan Harris. Dan Harris, you probably recognize. He's a anchor for Good Morning America on the weekends, and he is a peppy guy who seems to have lots of energy and quite frankly, seems to have it all together. And that's why I wanted to talk to him because he's written two books now about how he doesn't really have it all together. Uh, His first book is about him becoming 10% happier after he had a panic attack on the air. And his current book, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, is a book for those of us who think we can't meditate. Uh, Dan was once one of those people himself. It is definitely a book that advocates meditation, but I think even more than that, it advocates meditating from where you are now, you know? not trying to be perfect about it, just doing it. Anyway, his road of self-discovery and some tips for beginning meditators. Here's Dan. Dan Harris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I, re- I really appreciate I've been following you since your Wonkette days. Oh, God. I was just talking about how I feel so old these days. I have two um, writers that have written pieces recently that I, I reached out to tell them that I, I like the writing. And the response from both of them was, oh, thanks so much. I read you when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> they mean it as a compliment, just so you know. I know. I know. It just, I was like, oh, but I'm still, I'm still growing up. Hey, you know what? That's our segue. Still growing. Um, so this book is an outgrowth of a journey you started with 10% Happier. Um, do you want to do your elevator, you know, pitch slash summary of it? Um, just so we have a foundation to get started here. Sure, 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 sure. So, so um, I am not a typical meditation evangelist. I, I kind of got in, I got into meditation uh, after having a panic attack on national television, which um, people can still Google anytime they want. Yes, just use panic attack on <laughs> national television. Comes right up, uh, which is awesome. And uh, that's that. That was in back in like two thousand four, and. It was really embarrassing, and actually more embarrassing than that was what produced the panic attack, which is that some some very dumb behavior in my personal life. I had um, I had spent a lot of time in war zones as a very idealistic and ambitious young reporter, and then I came home and and got depressed, and then this is where the dumb stuff started. I started to self medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine. And uh, even though I wasn't, you know, doing it that often and not when I was on the air or when I was working or anything like that, but my doctor explained to me after I had the panic attack that it was enough to artificially raise the level of adrenaline in my brain and make it more likely for me to have a panic attack. And so that that set me off on this weird and windy little trip that ended up with me embracing meditation, which I had always thought was ridiculous, um, but ended up making... I ended up seeing all the science that suggests it's really good for you. And uh, and I started and it made, it made a significant difference for me. And so I wrote 10% Happier. And I, I didn't think anybody was going to read that book. I, you know, I was like, I'm a like a B-level uh, network newsman who's talking about a niche uh, subject. I didn't think anyone was going to read it. But then it, and, and it came out at a time when meditation was starting to become cool. This was the first time in my life I've ever been ahead of a trend. And um, <laughs> so so it, so people started to read it. And I. I um I had the, I was kind of naive and maybe a little cavalier. I thought that if you you know the the book is an argument dressed up as a memoir. The argument is you should meditate. Um but I tell my story as a way to make the point and I thought people who read read it would start to me- meditate and <laughs> that just just wasn't true. I completely underestimated th- how difficult it is for people to adopt healthy habits and we can talk about why that is and yeah. and um so I I started an app that teaches people how to meditate called 10% Happier. And and then in, in the course of working on this, I saw, oh, yeah, this is really hard. People really struggle for a whole host of reasons to start meditating. And so then I got the idea to write this next book, which is called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, where I 
to its part road trip where I would go across the country with one of my favorite meditation teachers in a big stupid orange bus and we um, uh, and and we meet people who want to meditate and aren't doing it and we help them kind of get over the hump. So it's part road trip, part instruction manual, part, you know, sort of behavior change, hack, advice, stuff. And I, full on endorsement, I, I already bought a copy for my uh, father-in-law. Oh, cool. And I am planning on giving this copy to my husband. And I, I almost want to talk to you like a whole separate sidebar conversation about masculinity and meditation <laughs> and why this book feels so perfect to give to men specifically. Um, but it's a great it is a great read. Um, you are rather aggressively goofy in it, but I think that's to a purpose. Um, and I think that it does kind of like unpack the as you, I think, say in, you know, the the sort of literature around it, like the pan flute aspect of meditation and turned meditation into something much more, something is much more easily fit into your everyday life, something that's not like uh, reified and turned into like a thing, but just a practice that you do. It kind of makes meditation seem more like a good habit and less like some thing that you have to build a, a yurt to do, I yeah. would say. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I... I um, I often say that I don't, there are no original ideas in my work. Um, I'm just, I just saw a market opening that all the meditation books that I've read were, you know, really good, but, but it kind of, you do hear pan flutes in the distance and it's like they're addressing you as grasshopper. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I, my, my only innovation is that I use the F word a lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and that that is just and it tends to make a big difference, especially as you indicated for for men. But I mean, a lot of, you know, absolutely for women too. Yes. Um, but uh, I should say yeah. the, way the book is for men. It's just I think that stripping away all of the what I think people get gets coded as kind of frou frou is yeah. one of the very big um, gifts of the book. The other thing that it does is it really does show people how to incorporate meditation into their everyday life. And this may be the point where I I say you meditate two hours a day. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> Which, after you explained how you do it, I was a little less impressed. So that's still a lot. But you want to explain to people like what your approach is? Because I think that's a good example, actually, of, of the book in practice. You know, I really wrestled with whether to disclose that in the book. And uh, because I felt like p- the response wouldn't be that people were impressed. I thought the response would be people would say, oh, well, if that's what it entails, I'm never going to meditate. Because my whole game, my whole oh, it mission. Oh, both. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. It's like me telling you I'm an Iron Man, which right. I am definitely not. Um, but it would it, that might make you think, well, I'm not going to exercise because I'm never going to get live up to that. Right. Um, and I don't. My whole mission in life is to make this practice accessible and attractive to skeptics. And so, yeah, I do two hours a day, and I think actually the the, the that Iron Man comp is the right way to think about it. I mean. There are a lot of people, myself included, whose exercise regime is like get in 30 minutes of cardio six times a week and just do what you need to do to stay healthy, but not you're not going crazy with it. But then there are people who get into uh, triathlons. And so for me, as somebody who's really, de- you know, really dedicating a, a lot of my life to meditation uh, and teaching it and promoting it. Uh, well, I'm not really a teacher, but let's just say educating people about it and promoting it. Evangelizing. That is absolutely what I am, an evangelist. And um, I, I, you know, it just makes sense for me to know more. And so for I having, I've tried to dive a little bit more deeply into the, the sort of deep end of the pool. But how do I do it? I don't sit and do two hours at once. My rule is, and this is where it becomes less impressive. Uh, my rule is I can do as much meditation as I want in whatever dosage wherever I want, whenever I want. And it just has to accumulate up to two hours by the end of the day. And you do it in things like in the back of cabs and, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, before you sleep. Yes. So it's it's you squeeze it in where you can. Um, yes. I actually, my first association to it was I made the resolution that seems a little trendy these days as far as health goes, which is I'm going to drink 64 ounces of water every day, mm-hmm. which I don't really like water. That's a sidebar, but like, so it was like a wait, thing. Wait, wait, wait. I know. You don't like water? I, know, I, don't, I like things like to taste. I like to things to have a taste, but I oh, realized I like I need to do you that. You know, they have flavored water. It's an innovation. Yes. It came after <laughs> sliced bread somewhat. <laughs> but so what? The, my, my revelation was like, oh, I can just like, I have an app, of course, like, and I can like just tap in like, oh, I can just 
get a glass here and get a glass there and get a glass there. And it starts to be less like, oh my God, I have to drink all of this water. I'm going right, to go to right, the bathroom right. constantly. Yes. Um, not maybe the metaphor you were looking for comparison. No, no, no. Actually, for, it's but... a really, it's a good metaphor. <laughs> but um, I want to talk about you going deeper because the book, as I said, and I, I mean this in a very positive way, is funny and um, uh, goofy uh, and you make a lot of jokes and you use a lot of curse words and it takes away a lot of um, the mystical aspects of of meditation that might be, get in the way for some people. You do indicate, though, that meditation has changed you in some fairly substantive ways and given you access to thinking about yourself and thinking about the world that's different than it used to be. Yeah, so this is why it's intimidating to be interviewed by a fellow journalist because you actually like see right through uh, some of the artifice. So, so yeah, I mean, there is an interesting conflict in my life, which is that my, you know, as a co-founder of a startup and uh, and as a guy who's uh, out, you know, I give a lot of speeches and write these books. I'm really trying to get people to do beginner meditation. Mm-hmm. And my whole message is one minute a day or one minute daily-ish. That absolutely counts. That's all you need to shoot for. And um, and I'm really, you know, I'm, my hair is on fire about this. Right. I think this is the next big public health revolution. And I, I think it, totally agree. So, and actually, our former uh, Surgeon General uh, also yes, agrees. Yes. Not current. I don't know who our current one is, but I know the <laughs> Obama Surgeon General <laughs> was on top of this. Um, and I also want to point out another thing that's that maybe you're. Uh, on to this first point about the way you evangelize, you also point out in terms of stripping away the mystical that meditation is just plain good for you. It's also just good fun. It can be. It's not about. It's not necessarily about revelations and and um, existential questions. But yeah, well, there is there is one. Let me just say there is one huge revelation that will happen the first time you sit down to meditate, which is this thunderously obvious fact that is almost universally overlooked, which is you have a mind and are thinking. And when you are unaware of this ridiculously obvious fact, the thinking owns you and you get you do things you later regret, like you eat when you're not hungry or you, uh, you know, vent your spleen at your uncle who disagrees with you politically uh, over the holidays uh, or you check your email in the middle of a conversation with your kid. It's because you're owned by this inner narrator that most of us aren't even aware that we're having this nonstop conversation with ourselves. Um, And so that. There are very obvious revelations that are actually, I believe, Mm game-changing. But um, as you were sort of leading me toward, um, it is also true that there is – there are more – there are deeper aspects to the practice that are very interesting to me that I I talk a little bit about in the the book, but – don't go into in a huge way because I'm still sort of forming my thinking around some of these and probably will be the subject of a future book at some point. Um, But, you know, it is a weird balance for me because for me, meditation isn't just, you know, something I do for a couple of minutes a day uh, as a, as, as a way to boost my health and performance, which I think is fine. It's great, but it is also, you know, one of the most important aspects of my life. Yeah, and that's what I would just love to drill down on um, because I think that the self-portrait that you paint is very relatable. I mean, I think that's why your books have done well. Uh, why I, The first one did well. I'm sure this one will do well. Um, you know, you were type A, competitive, uh, sarcastic, snarky, um, self-aware, uh, and all of those things. Um, you also talk very, you know, uh, candidly about your relationship with your wife and what how you do and don't get along and what your fights look like. And I'm just curious about that deeper level, though. And, and you talk about how some of that has changed because of your meditation practice. But I am really curious where this second level of meditation, when you go beyond, this is something actually I learned in your book. I, I'd always thought of mindfulness meditation as, as the way you describe it, which is you observe your thoughts right? That's mindfulness and you let them go. See, touch, go, I believe is one of the meditation mantras. The second level that you talk about is see, touch, explore, right? Yeah. So you, um, I need to ask you when we're, when, when you're done dragging this stuff out of me, uh, whether you meditate, but also I'll, we'll table that for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there is on one level, the, 
incredibly important revelation that I mentioned before that you have a mind that you're having this nonstop conversation with yourself and much of it is negative, repetitive, self-referential. And to see that is to be less yanked around by it. But there is the next level, which is <laughs> who is that really? If you close your eyes and look for Anna Marie, mm -hmm. what will you find? And the answer is you won't be able to find some core nugget of Anna Marie-ness. We are, as, as the Buddhists like to say, and I would call myself a Buddhist, frankly, um, we are empty, meaning we are empty of some solid, separate self. Um, and that illusion of a self is what is the wellspring of the of of the uh, um, negative emotions that tend to make us unhappy, and frankly, that we see playing out on the world stage, like greed and hatred and confusion about what our situation truly is. And um, that, to me, is inexhaustibly interesting. Not only as somebody who likes to read on these issues quite deeply, and, and I take classes, um, but also as a practitioner, I just got back from a 10-day silent meditation retreat where tackling these, seeing these issues in much more vivid uh, uh, color through, you know, putting yourself in a container where you are only doing meditation at high, high dosages. Um, that, to me, is incredibly interesting and ma has made a huge difference in my life. Would you say meditation has changed you or has it changed the way you see the world? Both, right. I mean, both. And it's changed my sense of wh who is, wh who's the me that I'm spending all this time defending and promoting? You know, wh wh where... Who, who is that? And once that, once you start to see through this illu e egoic illusion, you can uh, unclench just a little bit. It doesn't mean you don't have to put your pants on in the morning or, <laughs> or you know, uh, write a book and try to um, make it successful or anything like that. It just means you can be a little uh, more supple about it because you realize um, that on many levels, this is a game and that, and that, Truly, you know, a huge part for me of going deeper is to see, you know, one of the things that Buddhists talk about a lot is impermanence. Mm -hmm. And it is easy to say life is short is another thing to get a sense in much, you know, through deep meditation, how quickly everything in your experiences is arising and passing away. And um, and to truly engage in some of these sort of what I would call deep end practices that try to bring you closer to the non-negotiable fact of your mortality. Mm -hmm. And actually that is enlivening as it turns out the mind likes to be in touch with the truth. Um, we spend a lot of our life ignoring this, uh, quarantining elderly in nursing homes and, um, you know, dressing up um, bodies in funeral homes. And um, we, we try not to confront the fact of our own mortality but actually once the mind actually you 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 engage in these practices that um make this fundamental truth more real to you then you the the autopilot in which most of us spend our lives can fade away just a bit would you say that sort of knowledge and acceptance of mortality and uh acceptance of the emptiness the lack of self is the biggest uh, change of your mind that's happened. And I guess change of your mind. I actually didn't mean it to sound quite as clever as it does. Um, I'm curious about how meditation has changed what you think. The animating insight for me of this whole thing, both of my own pursuit of meditation and of my aforementioned evangelizing, is that the mind is trainable. Mm. That we think that we're kind of stuck with factory settings, you know, that we are as nice as we're ever going to be, we're as calm as we're ever going to be, we're as patient as we're ever going to be, um, we're as happy as we're ever going to be, that it's dependent upon exogenous factors like the quality of your childhood or your marriage or your work life, all of which are super important, and I'm not downplaying them in any way. But what the science around meditation is showing us, and what, if you try to do it, your personal experience will show you, I believe, is that if that is true at the level of just a few minutes a day, which is what, again, what I mostly traffic in for 
for people, um, uh, you know, for when I'm talking to people. If that's true at that level, what? How true is it at the at, at the deep end of the pool? What happens when you really go up to two hours a day and then also try to do extended meditation retreats? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's a there's a thought experiment that's often discussed in Buddhist circles, which is if you took an enlightened monk or nun from the Himalayas and you brought him or her to New York City and gave him or her a spouse and uh, some children and a full-time job, how enlightened would they be? <laughs> well, I want to reverse that experiment. Can I, I'm in New York City with a spouse and a three-year-old and three cats and uh, two, two full-time jobs. And so what's possible for me? If the mind is trainable uh, and we know that it's possible to be 10% happier, which is kind of a joke, but still, what's the ceiling? Mm-hmm. So that is the, the question to me, that's the burning question. And what and, and, and what is that to get to your question? What is it? How does that change the way you are in the world? Well, you start to see that it doesn't. I used to be kind of an asshole, and um, not not an not entirely. It's not like I had no friends or anything like that. But I had sharp elbows, and professionally, and um, you know, I could be irascible around the house, to say the least. Um, and I talk about this in the mm-hmm. book, and and. Um, you start to see that it feels better. It feels better at the level of your own mind to be nicer. So just, just as an example, how does it feel when you hold the door open for somebody? It feels good if you bother to pay attention. Well, that is scalable. And um, so for me, that, that kind of training, that's just a tiny example, but training your mind in this way systematically, it just makes a ton of sense. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Honey. <laughs> There's an amazing free browser. I'm extension. so excited that bees are sponsoring. Yeah, not the condiment. <laughs> There's the condiment. What, we, what is honey? It's not a sauce. It's a sweetener. Ooh. What would you call it? Oh, Let's this have is like a, the great diehard Christmas movie debate that everyone hates. You know who probably doesn't Cornel. want this debate? The people. The people <laughs> who point. name their company no, Honey. I, I think. Anyway, it's, it's a free browser extension called Honey that millions and millions of people use every day to save money. It works on Chrome, Firefox, Safari, all the major browsers. Major browsers. <laughs> and it's always free. It only takes two clicks to add Honey to your browser. Then it starts working in the background right away. While you shop, Honey scans and tests millions of coupon codes all over the internet to find you the biggest discount on everything you buy online. No more Googling random coupon codes that don't end up working. Everyone hates that. But here's the best part of it all. They never work when you're trying to hunt for a code. Whenever you're ready to check out, Honey automatically applies the best coupon to your cart. There's no reason not to add Honey to your browser. It's free. We all love it here. It works great. You get some good deals. It will save you cash on everything you were going to buy anyway. And if you're not using Honey when you shop, you're missing out on free money. Put the browser on, the browser extension on. You're going to get free money when you shop. It's like landing on Community Chest. It is. Add Honey (laughs) to your browser for free right now at joinhoney.com slash crookedconvos. That's joinhoney.com slash crookedconvos. So we we do have a lot in common, I think. Um, uh, one of them is is cats. Um, I think that that actually we probably I think we corresponded on Twitter about that a long time ago. Um, so pro cat contingent, and then also, um, yeah, I have a practice. I would say um, I'm in twelve step recovery from drugs and alcohol. Um, full on, I'm a full on addict. You sounds like you were you were an amateur. <laughs> Yes. Um, <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right. <laughs> and it was amazing to me reading your book, how much resonated from my journey as both um, someone in recovery and as a Christian, uh, the ideas and attitudes that you're talking about. Um, one of the primary ones is, is the one you're citing as primary for yourself, which is the idea that the mind is trainable. And the metaphor that I always use, and you almost said it, is those feelings of um, hope of happiness, of generosity, um, of compassion. The, what I've always heard, and, and I try to pass on to other people, are those, those are actions and not feelings, actually, right? Mm. Hope is a muscle. Faith is a muscle. Love is a muscle. Love is an action. Hope is an action. Faith is an action. Um, and you can get better at them. You don't have to wait to feel them. Uh, and that's something that I've come to through, you know, recovery, which is like this weird parallel journey, it sounds like. To what you're doing well and and i'm not an expert in the 12 steps but i believe that meditation and it prayer is. is one of them they are indeed um you were gonna ask me if i meditate um 
earlier on, I'm now six and a half years sober. Um, earlier, that's a big, I don't want to just let that slip by. That is a massive <laughs> accomplishment, a massive accomplishment. Thank you. So bravo to you. Thank you very much. Um, it is, uh, it is literally something for, I am grateful for every day. Yeah. Uh, it is my miracle. I sometimes say every night when my head hits the pillow, I know what my miracle was. You may not know you, you got a miracle today too, but it's a mystery for you. Um, but I know what my miracle is. Uh, so, but when I was earlier on, prayer meditation were a bigger part of my practice. And it's funny because I started off as sort of atheist agnostic in this journey too. And the way that I got myself to do prayer meditation was that I'd read some article in Wired saying exactly what you're talking about, that um, that prayer meditation changed your mind. And I knew my mind was broken. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, so I'm not going to think of this as prayer meditation. I'm going to think of this as rewiring. And that helped me get over some of the stuff that you you talk about people having to get over when they get to meditation too. Um, I, rem- I remember. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I didn't go, ahead, know go ahead. I was just going to say I remember very clearly when you wrote your article where you sort of, I don't know if this is the right term, but I think you actually used the term in the article, came out as a Christian. Yes. Um, and I reread it in preparation for talking to you today. And I, I actually, I mean, if you're willing to talk about it, I would love to know a little bit more about how, because you just said you started that process, process of recovery as an atheist slash agnostic. And then you got to a place, and if you read that article, where you you are using all the language. Um, <laughs> I used to be a religion reporter um, and still do cover faith and spirituality, even though I would call myself an agnostic for sure. How, how, I, I was really curious, given your family background, which appears to be atheist agnostic, mm-hmm. and um, your um, journalistic training and um, education. How does a smarty educational pants background. become a Christian? Well, not that, <laughs> because I know a lot of very smart Christians, um, right. just by dint of having spent a lot of time in the, in the, in the faith, on the faith scene. But just, what is the intellectual process that allows you to adopt metaphysical claims oh, without proof? That's such proof? an interesting question. Um, Part of it is that um, I have I have my miracle. That is that is my proof. I am sober today, and I cannot explain why. Like there is probably a scientific explanation. In fact, I'm certain that there's a scientific explanation. But I also can tell you that I tried really hard uh, to be sober for a long time without using the steps and tools of recovery. One of which is reliance on a higher power, and I couldn't do it. Uh, it just wasn't, it wasn't within me. And so I came to rely on a higher power and that is enough for anyone that wants to get sober. And I, you sort of gesture towards it or your co-author gestures towards that idea um, towards the end of the book too. This idea that just, that meditation can be like prayer, just that you're invoking another larger spirit than yourself. And I want to just say for people who are interested in recovery, like that is definitely all you need. You do not have to become a Christian or have a specific kind of faith. Um, But once I realized that I was staying sober through reliance on something other than myself, uh, I started to get curious about the tools that other people were using to live lives that I thought were admirable or interesting or not just interesting. I shouldn't say that. full. And it turns out a lot of the people that I thought had really wonderful ways of looking at the world were Christian. Hmm. And I brought to the faith a lot of the assumptions that I think any kind of secular American would bring. Um, I thought that you had to be conservative to be a Christian. I thought that you had to be pro-life. I thought that you had to uh, have certain uh, cultural preferences. Uh, I thought also that it meant being perfect. Um, you only need one thing, though. Yeah. Yeah. Just to believe. That's right. And I often say, like, I could be wrong. I don't believe. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about the nature of belief. Maybe you and I can talk about that offline, like, because I don't have any answers about it and I don't want to bore people. <laughs> but because I often say it's not that I it's not that I fully believe. It's that I don't not believe. Mm. And I'm willing to accept the idea that all of these things may be true. And I, um, 
It's funny because I really struggled with the whole resurrection part of it too, because that's another thing I thought you had to believe. Um, if you're going to be a Christian, like I loved the ideas that I that I heard my friends talking about, right? I loved the um, message of grace, this idea that we're all fallen, but all forgiven, right? Um, and that we're all healed and that that is something that is a gift to everyone, that everyone can have. Uh, and everyone has. You don't, you, all you have to do is accept the gift. You don't have to do anything to earn it. But I was like, but I don't know if I can believe in this whole, like the guy went into the cave and he was dead and then he was alive. And um, a friend of mine who is a Christian was talking to this, talking to me about this. And his question was, you know, do you believe in the miracle of your sobriety? And I said, well, yeah, but you know, that's not like, that's, that's, that's just my sobriety. You know, like, and he was like, well, do you believe in the miracle? He also like, I've had um, a couple of other things happen in my life that are times when it would be easy to infer the presence of some kind of gift from above, let's say, Mm. Um, happenstances and whatnot. Um, People, uh, someone very close to me survived an overdose that they should not have survived. And he asked if I believe that was a miracle. And I was like, yeah, it's a miracle, but like, it's a small, that's, I mean, the grand scheme of things. You know, it's not that. It also could be explained by science. And he said, but if you're willing to believe those things might be miracles, why is the resurrection too big a miracle for you? Why limit the size of the miracle you're willing to accept? And something about that phrasing just unlocked it for me. Why limit the size of the miracle that you're willing to accept? You know, it doesn't mean that I, again, I don't know if I believe, believe, believe. But that's not, you know, that's not the point of it, I don't think, for me. It's my, not my understanding. Um, yeah, and it sounds like you've derived an enormous amount of meaning. sustenance from it. Yeah, meaning. meaning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can get, I get teary-eyed just talking about grace, like, which is something that a lot of different spiritual practices kind of have different ways of talking about. But this idea that, like, you are whole already, which is something, again, I sort of found echoed in your book, right? Like, there is nothing more for you to do to earn the approval of the universe. Right. right. Uh, there's an expression, all spokes lead to the hub. Mm-hmm. And I do think there is an enormous amount of overlap in the multi-layered Venn diagram among many of the world's spiritual traditions pointing in a, in a very similar direction. So I don't know if that helped explain. <laughs> and then there, there's some other, other parts of it actually just sort of fit into some of the logic that you used to talk about meditation for sure. Um, uh, I do believe in the discipline of prayer. Um, I was just talking uh, with someone here at the studio who, who shares my journey um, about how uh, we Christians have sort of different kinds of prayer and different, you know, sects look upon different sorts as being better and worse. Um, and that evangelicals actually really frown on set prayers. They don't like it if you just say like, I mean, it's it's sort of covertly kind of anti-Catholic, really. Um, uh, if you just say say the same prayer over and over, that's like not as good, you know, as something original. But that I find a lot of comfort in just having my having a few set prayers that I go to, and that that is meditation. Yeah, I mean, if you think of meditation as training the mind. Well, of course, prayer is a kind of training of the mind. I have a pastor friend who talks about uh, this thing he does called the Jesus goggles, I believe, where he, when he's walking down the streets of New York City, he'll just put on these glasses through which he views everyone the way Jesus might. (laughs) And what is that if not a a form of compassion training where you are building this muscle of seeing that there is some level of care that you can have for people you don't know. Yeah. Let's talk about that compassion training because I think that is something that both intersects, you know, sort of my journey and your journey and also can probably be of great use to to the sorts of folks that listen to Crooked Media podcasts. <laughs> um, so someone asked me once and I have said I pray for Trump all the time. Uh, it is a practice that does not always feel good. Um, but I pray for him. I pray for other people who I do not uh, agree with ideologically. I pray for people who I think are doing harm in the world. Um, and that's a traditional Christian practice. That is like, 
a thing that goes way, way back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a kind of, med- in, but it's a kind of meditation as well. It is. Yes. And you have a specific way of kind of talking about that in the book. And I wonder if you want to review that. I think it'll make more sense to people than my saying, I pray for Trump. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it will maybe amplify the point. And, yeah. and um, because I think it's a very wise move on your part. Um, the when when people talk about meditation these days, uh, generally speaking, especially when it comes to mindfulness meditation, which is the flavor that I'm uh, that I do and 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 uh, teach, um, it, it is uh, it's about generally sitting and trying to feel your breath coming in and going out, and then every time you get distracted, which you will a million times, just beginning again and again and again, and that's seeing the distraction and letting it go that moment where you see uh, the the thing i keep talking about that you have a mind and are thinking that is the win that it's not a failure that is the win because when you see your inner zoo it 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 has diminishing chances of of controlling you that is the way most people talk about meditation these days but the way it was initially taught in a buddhist context was as a uh, uh there were two tracks that were often taught simultaneously if if um, my memory serves correctly, the kind of mindfulness, self-awareness meditation that I just described, and also a set of practices known as compassion meditation, which is involves sort of channeling the thinking mind where you, it actually, what I'm about to describe is going to sound incredibly annoying because it is, it's like systematic cultivation of sappiness. I've often <laughs> described it as Valentine's Day with a gun to your head, uh, where you sit and try to, you actually envision a series of beings, people or animals, and send them good vibes by repeating silently in your head phrases like, may you be happy, may you be well, uh, may you be healthy. Um, And so you often start with yourself, which is a very challenging one, but it's Mm -hmm. hard to be of use to anybody if you're at war with yourself. So you start with yourself and then you build um, to a benefactor, somebody who's been really helpful in your life. For me, it's my parents and my brother. Um, And then a a dear friend, somebody you just love in a very uncomplicated way. In this case, my three-year-old used to be one of my cats. Um, And then you go to um, a neutral person, somebody who you see every day, but don't really have a relationship with and often overlook. And then here's where we get to for what for some people might be Trump, for others might be Hillary, uh, although probably not people listening to this podcast. Um, the, <laughs> oh, you never the, know. We have some Chapo Trap House crossovers. So. Yes, or some Bernie bros. Yeah, um, right. So the, then you go to the difficult person, right. sometimes referred to in Buddhist context as the enemy, and you cultivate uh, good wishes, friendliness toward that person. And then you cu- it culminates with um, all beings. Let mm-hmm. me just say that this has been studied in the labs. And uh, what it shows is what the studies suggest is that these practices have health benefits, but they also have behavioral benefits. They can change behavior. Just as a brief example, some preschoolers were taught uh, by one of the premier neuroscientists uh, at the University of Wisconsin how to do this practice. And those kids were more likely to give their stickers away to kids they didn't know. Uh, and having a preschooler around the house, that's a pretty big deal, I now realize. <laughs> and it, it really can change behavior. And it goes back to what I said before when you asked me, you know, why you're doing this and how has it changed you? The mind is trainable. You, we think we are as nice. Many of us kind of assume, consciously or subconsciously, we're as nice as we're ever going to be. We are this kind of person and that is not going to change. You know, maybe you get misty in a rom-com, but you're not generally very generous or whatever. Uh, that would have been how I would have described myself. Um, uh, but actually, no, these are these are trainable things. And that is what you, Ms. Cox, are training when you pray for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, not only does it make sense for me just theoretically, but the scientists would agree with you as well. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting to me. I I think... In your book, you talk about compassion for self has has to come first. Uh, and in that training, it comes first. For me, I've always found it, it's almost like a seesaw effect, or I don't know, I don't have the right, quite the right metaphor at hand, which is that sometimes when I'm having trouble having compassion for myself. Trying to have compassion for someone who I resent is a, is a good training for mm. having compassion for myself. Yeah, I see that. I and see then that. it also works the other way. You know, if I'm having trouble having compassion for someone else, can I have some compassion for myself? Then I have easier time having compassion for someone else. I mean, the latter is just, I mean, so intuitive, right? That the, yeah. if you, when you're 
if, if you're feeling badly about yourself, it is just hard to muster the generosity of spirit to do much mm-hmm. for other people. It, this is why often some of the meanest people in our world um, are, are, you know, desperately insecure. Um, the, the former is interesting to me. Just walk me through again how that would work. So if you're having trouble with yourself, sitting down and, and cultivating... Um, Compassion for uh, someone some, else. Yeah, David Duke. Um, can, <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, So, but is it because it pulls you out of your own yeah, head, your it, own little sort of ego cul-de-sac? Yep, yeah, that's exactly it. It pulls me out of my own head, and also um, it allows me to focus on this message of grace that I do believe, right? I believe that all of us are offered grace. I believe that offer all of us, that we live, as hard as it is to believe sometime, I do believe we believe we live in a benevolent universe, Um, and that even people who do horrible things can ultimately find grace. And if I can think of someone who I really, and if I really believe that and I really believe that, then surely I should be able to have it as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, if I can, if I can practice this compassion for someone who is misshapen morally, let's say like David Duke, praying for someone doesn't mean you like them. doesn't mean you want them to succeed doesn't mean you support them. It just means compassion. Um, I often think of it as um, justice also. Um, uh, but I can, if I, someone who is so horribly misshapen, morally misshapen, what a tragedy that is for that person. How horrible it must be to be that person. What a, what a sad and cramped life. It's, it's so interesting to hear you describe this because the way you're talking about this is almost identical to the way that Sharon Salzberg, who's an eminent meditation teacher, probably the premier proponent of compassion meditation in the West, uh, one of my teachers and also a really good friend, um, when when she talks about developing compassion or friendliness toward um, difficult people, she adds pointedly, this isn't about condoning their behavior. It's not inviting them over for dinner Mm-mm. or giving them money. It's about seeing that there is a fundamental connection among everybody who has sentience. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and that if that person can be forgiven, then I can be forgiven. I mean, you talk a little bit about this in the book and I just, you know, I really connected with it. Like my voices, (laughs) oh boy, are they mean to me? Right. I have a collection of just really cruel voices in my head. Well, you, you, you've written, if I recall about some, some genuine, diagnosable mental health challenges. Yes, yes. Um, I am uh, bipolar one uh, and I've, I'm a suicide attempt survivor. Um, so those voices, man, woof, yeah. you know, they can be loud and convincing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that other people deserve compassion can help sh- shut them up. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, I can. I really see that once you put it that way. Yeah, because they, they don't have anything to say about that. <laughs> You know, they they mainly focus on me. They're mainly just just talk to me. But if I'm like, hey, what are the primary ways in which you've been able to attack those mental health challenges? I mean, you talked you've talked a lot about faith and prayer. What are the other levers you've been able to pull that have helped? Well, medication is awesome, right? Uh, the right finding the right medications, and that is something you when you talk about people using meditation in the book, you also do off do say straight out, and I will offer that too professional help is there for you if one is suffering from any kind of mental health uh, issue. Um, and you should utilize those tools. And I have. Um, so I, I wouldn't be able to do probably some of the other stuff that I do if I wasn't on the right, you know, cocktail of psychotropic. I guess they're not psychotropics. They're psycho... I can't remember the right term. Anyway, mood, mood stabilizers. Um, that, and then like, you know, I mean, it's the same same kind of tool kit I think anyone who's done any investigation into this stuff is familiar with you know I exercise um, AA is also a support group support groups are incredibly important in mental health as well if you're not in a 12-step program you should probably find some other form of, of meeting regularly with people who share your struggle um, perhaps a meditation group also would be useful in that same way um, do, do you think the substance abuse was your way to self-medicate for the underlying? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I also think that addiction is a disease. And I think, you know, my mom was an alcoholic and her 
father was an alcoholic and my grandmother was an alcoholic. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that part of it was like kind of unavoidable. Like the chemical, the other other people in this with the same set of psychological issues may have chosen another way of coping. But like my predisposition was to, you know, alcohol and drugs worked really well for me. Like until they didn't. Right. Yeah. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Dirty Money on Netflix. Dirty Money is a thrilling investigative series from Oscar award-winning director Alex Gibney, which provides an up-close and personal view into untold stories of scandal and corruption in the world of business. Using first-hand accounts from perpetrators and their victims, combined with rarely seen video footage, this addictive series keeps viewers on the edge of their seats. In the 2009 financial crisis, the scandal was what was legal. There are timely real-world applications and consequences of these stories. Consequences. I sound like love it. There are timely real-world applications and consequences of these stories in the current day news cycle. Each episode is crafted by a high-level investigative filmmaker, including Alex Gibney, Jesse Moss, Aaron Lee Carr, Chrissy Jacobson, Brian McGinn, and Fisher Stevens. Episodes include The Confidence Man, a rollicking profile of the rise and reign of Trump, Inc., Weaving together a tapestry of tales in real estate boom and bust, Stevens lays out how Donald Trump's business career transformed from epic failures into a consummate branding machine that propelled him into office. That's Fisher mm. Stevens. We heard of him earlier. Payday. Targeting unsuspecting Americans, a group of payday lenders made millions off small loans with undisclosed charges, inflated interest rates, and incomprehensible rules. But the way the laws are written, is that a crime or just business? What <laughs> love it was alluded right, to earlier. Got, yeah. Got yeah, the crime is that it's legal. Elizabeth Warren over here. This feels and like the, a Think Progress blog post became a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually by Judd Legum. And the, and the maple syrup heist. In Canada, maple syrup is worth more than oil. When 20, what? Wow. When $20 million of syrup goes missing. I feel like one of these is not like the other, guys. <laughs> when $20 million of syrup goes missing, the trail leads back to an epic battle between cartels and the little guy. Wow. And, and you might say the I'll outcome is uh, I am not that. so sweet. <laughs> Jesus. I am huh? watching the maple syrup heist. <laughs> I am first. too. Uh, from crippling payday loans to cars that cheat emissions tests, this investigative series exposes brazen acts of corporate greed and corruption. Cool. Season one is coming to Netflix on January 26th. You'll that get, sounds outstanding. I can't uh, wait to yeah, see it's this. like Bernie became a series. I these, like this. These, Bernie, the series. these documentaries are going like hotcakes. I get it. <laughs> Just got to put that one earlier in your mind. Good girl, pundit. <laughs> Well, yeah, there she is. We're waffling over whether we want to watch this. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and well, I also want to offer something that um, a really helpful insight that I'm not even sure you don't make a big deal about this in the book, but it was it, I I had a revelation in reading it. You're talking about worry and how um, you use this the phrase worrying only takes you so far. And for some reason, that phrasing was really helpful for me to think about forgiveness. Mm. Because it's really helpful if, if you, you know, one of the ways you develop the habit of meditation is to not beat yourself up about it, right? Um, and how do you not beat yourself up about past behavior? Your past behavior isn't your enemy. It's just something that's only taken you so far. It's like the ride that you took to get to this station. And now you get off and you wave goodbye and you get on another Kind of transport. I don't know. I don't know if that's yeah, what I'm thinking, but that struck me. Yeah, I mean the the I'm, I'm quoting the the Buddhists a lot today. It's not. I, I can't believe I'm that type of dude now, but I guess here we are. Um, the Buddhists talk about they have a very useful concept, which is wise remorse mm -hmm. rather than over the top self flagellation. So it's not it's not to say that if you have screwed up in your life, and we all have that there aren't good things to learn from it and it doesn't that you know a certain amount of remorse makes sense mm -hmm. um because you know my last big screw ups are you know are within the past 36 hours you know we're just constantly screwing up and you don't want to um uh paper over them um but you also don't want to end up in a useless spiral of uh of um self recrimination and so it, there is no there's no, unfortunately, there's no magic formula for where to draw the line. But the self-awareness that can be generated through meditation, through this thing called mindfulness, which is this, which is what happens when you do, when you watch your breath and then every time you get distracted, you start again. You start to know what you're thinking and feeling in a way that uh, doesn't, um, that, that it doesn't control you. And 
that kind of self-awareness is very useful to help you draw the line between, um, you know, beating yourself up for everything you've done in the past or spending a lot of time uh, berating, you know, others who may have wronged you. Um, and then knowing when to set that down because it's not useful anymore. So I, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else you want to make sure to get to before we wrap up? Um, I, you know, I just wanted to amplify something you said before when you were talking about how you've um, dealt with uh, bipolar, uh, that that um, you're absolutely right. Uh, there, I am, while I spend a lot of time talking to people about meditation, I am a maximalist when it comes to well-being and, <laughs> and medication, uh, uh, getting enough sleep, eating enough. Oh, halt. all of these. Th- One of the most helpful uh, uh, yes, acronyms yes. ever. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. That's something they teach you in rehab right away. <laughs> yeah, that's when we do yep. our dumbest stuff. When yep. We're we're under the uh, the sway of the the of anything in the in halt. Um, and so I, I just you know I I, I don't think I, I don't when my whole much of what I'm doing is driven by this kind of revulsion at the. $11 billion howling sea of bullshit that is America's self industry, uh, self-help industry and where that you are promised these, you know, uh, silver bullets um, and they don't exist. Um, there are lots of arrows in the quiver, but the not, not, no one of them is going to solve every problem. And so I just wanted to be clear about that. But otherwise, it's just been a huge pleasure after many years. I didn't follow you when I was growing up, but um, <laughs> I have followed you for a long time. So it's a real pleasure to connect with you. I was just so blown away by how much I found. I have, I think I am lucky to be an addict and alcoholic because I do get to have this program of recovery that is familiar to a lot of people around the world. And, you know, I can access at any time. Uh, your book opens up, I think, something for people who, who want that same kind of recovery. Um, but you don't actually have to become an alcoholic or an addict. That's probably a bonus, <laughs> I think. <laughs> for yeah, and a it's, lot of people. it speaks. It speaks to where we are too in, in the culture where you know the fastest growing religious affiliation is nuns, yep. Yep. not N U N, but yep. N O N E. And and but that doesn't erase the human thirst for meaning, right? And connection. And I think that is part. Uh, and I think the rise of meditation is multifactorial, but I, I think part of it is that. And, uh, and I truly do believe that meditation does, does offer that. Um, you don't have, you don't have to go for that. There are other reasons to do it. But, um, when you asked before about the depth that for which I've been sort of, uh, toward which I've been kind of lurching in my own personal practice, um, that's part of it for sure. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Appreciate it. More to come. And that is it for the show. Thank you so much for listening. Check back next week for another great conversation from the Crooked Media Network.